finished effectively when he ascends back to heaven. And um, we are now approaching the moment where Jesus is about to reach the cross. We're coming up to Easter weekend, and of course we have Easter at the end of this month. By that time, we'll be reaching the passage where Jesus, the weekend where Jesus dies, um, is buried, and rises again. And we're at the portion just before that where Jesus has been arrested, and um, he's now been put on trial, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And some um, aspect, one particular aspect of what happens during his trial is what we're going to focus on today. Now, injustice is a word that evokes big feelings, isn't it? We hate injustice. Or at least, I very much hope we do. <laughs> injustice evokes big feelings. We see it on the news and we see people getting wrongfully convicted. Sometimes you see on the news that someone has been released after 17 years in prison for something they didn't do and these kind of things we see. That's big news, isn't it? Um, sometimes we discover stories about people getting away with things. Sometimes getting away with literal murder. We do find this, and it burns in our hearts. We hate it, don't we? And for very good reason. There was a gentleman over 200 years ago called Blackstone, 18th century. He was a politician and a justice in this country. And he once said, it is better that 10 guilty persons escape than that one innocent suffer. What he's talking about is how rigorous the law needs to be to make sure all safeguards are in place to make sure, as much as we can, humanly possible, that one innocent person doesn't go to prison or get sentenced. Law has to be that rigorous, but in which case, sometimes that means up to 10 guilty people can go free. He's saying that, that is a risk we have to take, but that's a, a, um, a maxim we have to lean on. Um, now, of course, that statement has been drilled into law students ever since right into the 21st century. Um, famous writers have quoted it in uh, famous works of literature and so on. And um, it's where the actual phrase then has, has expounded from it, beyond reasonable doubt. I'm sure you've all heard about that. Beyond reasonable doubt. That is drummed into US legal students, UK law, law students, and of course attorneys, lawyers around the modern world. It's got to be beyond reasonable doubt before you uh, um, convict and sentence someone, declare someone to be guilty. Now, of course, that does mean that innocents are protected, hopefully, not always, but more than otherwise, but it does also mean some guilty parties get away with it on a legal loophole, don't they? We get it, innocents must be protected, but even universal opinion on this particular phrase, though, it's better that 10 guilty people escape than one innocent person suffers. Universal opinion, people are being polled around the world these days, across, across the nations, and the opinion is wavering on it because now the horror of thinking guilty people are, are nevertheless walking free is starting to become the bigger burning issue, <laughs> almost to the expense of innocence. There's a lot of debate about it. It's fascinating. We hate injustice, and it bothers us. And in today's passage, we're going to be looking at an awful miscarriage of justice, one in which it's already bad enough that we know that the pure, sinless Son of God himself would end up executed at the hands of those he had created to love. That is what's about to happen. But also to compound that suffering and, and injustice is that a guilty man, as we're going to read in a moment, goes free in his place. There's a lot of feelings 
involved in this portion of the story that is heading towards the cross, and rightly so. So with that in mind, let's just read Luke 23 from verse 13, and we're going to read up to verse 25. And it says this, Pilate, he's the Roman governor, we'll talk about him in a moment. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, he's another ruler we'll talk about, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. We've still got to punish him. He hasn't done anything. But I will release him. That's what he says. Be with this man and release to us Barabbas. He was a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Let me just pray for a moment. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is equally relevant today as it ever has been. Lord, in this next 20 minutes or so, can we, can we hear your voice through this? Can we hear your heart for us? Can we learn what it is you want us to do in response? Help us to see more of you. Help us to be faithful enough to respond where you challenge us, to listen where you're provoking us, and to love you all the more as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so what are we going to do with this story? Full of feelings, isn't it? We're going to look at three things, just briefly. We're going to look at the trial itself. Let's just understand the context of how this trial is operating, what's happening in that world, in that culture, ancient times. Let's understand what's happening in the trial. Then we're going to look at the accusers. We're going to look at these people who are involved, the, the prosecution, if you like. And then we're going to look at the defence. We're going to look at the accused. We're going to look at Barabbas. And then we're going to finish by looking at Jesus. Okay, you up for that? We're good. Uh, the trial, first of all. What's going on here? Now, it's fascinating that up until this point, the general population of Israel have been quite chilled about Jesus. When you think about it, by now he has his devout followers. Jesus has his devout followers who are following him across the country. Not just his 12 disciples, but there's a 72 and then there's hundreds around them as well. There is, there is a a crowd of devout followers. But he also, he has his enemies um, amongst these religious leaders that we find here. Um, but the, the common folk at large generally have seemed quite, I don't know, what's the best word, somewhat ambivalent about it all. There's, there's those few, comparative to the nation's population, there's those few that are on one side for Jesus. There are those few on the other side against him. And there's quite a seemingly silent majority in the middle until now. But here we discovered, we discover in the early verses that we just read, it's not just the religious leaders now who are baying for Jesus' blood, 
But it also says, uh, verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. Lots of the common folk are now involved. It's not just the religious leaders who are clamouring for this. And the people were there. And in next week's portion of scripture I'll be preaching on next Sunday, it says there followed Jesus a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So there's also a crowd of people who are for him and mourning what's about to happen. See, now suddenly, the general population are starting to take sides in, this, in great numbers in this whole conversation. They're no longer silent in the middle. They're starting to take sides. More and more and more are joining the religious leaders against Jesus. More and more and more are following his disciples in following him and mourning and lamenting what's about to happen to him. Many are against him. Many are for him. And here we've got many who are crying out for Jesus to be crucified. They're appealing to the civil authorities to fulfill their wishes on their behalf. They don't want to do some kangaroo... They're dead cowards. They don't want to do some kangaroo court in someone's house with Jesus. We kidnapped him at night and we're going to kill him in the backyard. They don't want to do that. They want to, let, they want to wash their hands of this. They're getting the, the um, civil authorities to do it for them. That's what they're asking for. Now, these civil authorities, there's two particular figures that are mentioned here, Pilate and Herod. Just so we understand who they are, Pilate was the um, Roman governor for Judea in the south of the nation, and that's where the capital city, Jerusalem, is, where this is all happening. He's doing it in the south of the nation on behalf of the Roman Empire, across the Roman Empire. This is his district he's responsible for, the south of the nation. That's Pilate. And then Herod, he's from a long line of Herods, and he's ruler of Galilee, a portion of the nation in the north. That's his area of jurisdiction, if you like, which is where Jesus came from, which is where he'd, he'd be most active. It's where 11 out of 12 of his um, kind of tighter disciples all came from as well. And so what happened is the religious and civil leaders had Jesus arrested, given to Pilate, because it's all happening in the south of the country right now. So we go to the local governor. He doesn't know what to do with him. But Herod happens to be visiting Jerusalem at this time. He goes, well, actually, he's from your district. You can have him. So he goes, gives Jesus to, to Herod, who goes, I don't know what to do with him, has a little chat. No, actually, it's happening in Jerusalem, so it's your district, you can have him back. So they bounce Jesus back. And it's like Jesus is being bounced around like in a pinball machine or something. He's been pushed about, because people just want to wash their hands of this. I don't want to be responsible for what's about to happen. Neither of these ruling men, Pilate or Herod, find any legal, any legitimate reason to do what the people want. And the people there are asking for a, a heinous, illegal thing. They're asking for state murder. That's what they're asking for. But Pilate says, as we read here, verse 14, after examining him before you, he says, Behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Now, it's a fascinating trial. It's an interesting word for it. It's not really a trial, is it? As many of you know, my Jenny, she's downstairs with the teens now, she loves watching her live-streamed court uh, trials from the US. UK trials are closed. That's why we get those weird chalk pictures of people on the news, don't we? But um, in America, they live-stream them. It's fascinating. The only things that are redacted, I think, are autopsy photos. It's pretty much everything's 
for you to watch and listen to. So sometimes I'll wake up and generally at 2 a.m. is glued to YouTube. Like you never guess what's happening. She loves them. She's fascinated by it. Um, and so each morning she'll bring me up to speed on the latest developments of what's happening in the latest trial. The Rust trial is happening at the moment, the Alec Baldwin film shoot, uh, literally shoot, where someone died when a live bullet was, should not have been on set. And because of the armourer, armor, she's now on trial. She could get a sentence for it. Um, Jenny's bringing me up to speed each day on the latest developments in what's happening. The, these trials, they don't just last days sometimes, they last weeks. So I, I get it all. It's great. Um, but sometimes there'll be shocking revelations. Sometimes there'll be twists or new evidence that, that can suddenly turn outcomes, um, can enable a guilty or a not guilty um, decision that was not always expected from the beginning and stuff like that. But here, this, is it really a trial? It's more a few conversations, isn't it? Some people are baying for blood and some leaders having a chat with Jesus. It's, it's, it's more of an audience with a couple of governing figures, really, isn't it? There's no prosecuting lawyer. There's certainly no defence lawyer. There's no uh, jury. There's no exhibit A. There's no last-minute surprise witnesses. None of that at all. These are just conversations before two men who actually can hold a man's future in their hands. And they're being asked to enact what the people wanted, but they are unable to find any legal reason, any excuse to do what they want. There's remotely, there's no grey wriggle room here at all. Which, I mean, funny that, since Jesus is actually pure and innocent. But they can't find anything. But, we need to understand that Pilate himself is not exactly a just character himself, let's be honest. He's not actually intent on doing what is right here. He's a man who will do what suits him. And that is quite key here as well. Uh, We read about him in the history books outside of uh, the biblical accounts as well. Um, Other history books like uh, Philo, he was a philosopher at the time, and Josephus, he was a historian from back then. They tell us that Pilate detested the Jews, hated them. And whenever he had to deal with them, he invariably took the opposite position to what they wanted simply because they were Jewish. That's what he was like. And there's, I know I've told this story before, but there was... As an example, there was a time when Pilate wanted to build an aqueduct to divert water from these pools near Bethlehem, 20 kilometres away. He wanted to divert water from there to the centre of the capital city, Jerusalem. And so that building work was huge and needed a lot of funding. So what did he do? He demanded money from the Jews' temple treasury for it. And they were not happy. They were not happy. That money had been set aside for God. So naturally, the people were outraged. So what did they do? They sent a delegation to Pilate to demand this money back. They're saying, that money, that was for holy purposes. That was not for some over-budgeted vanity project of yours. That's not what that money's for. How dare you? And by the end of it, 10,000 protesters had amassed in protest against what he, wanted, what he wanted to do with their money. So what did Pilate do? He sent some of his soldiers, described, uh, disguised as common folk, into the crowd, and when they received a certain signal, they attacked attack the uh, protesters with clubs and daggers, and many, many protesters were slain on the spot that day. And Jesus refer- references that incident earlier in the Gospels. He, he talks about it. 
Perhaps Pilate was happily responsible for that because he wanted to get his own way. He wanted to do what suits him. He was not averse to slaughtering Jewish worshippers when things didn't go his way. It's awful, horrible. I said, what's he doing here? It looks like he's being all just like pure and innocent as like, I can't find anything wrong with him, doesn't he? He rightly states there is no legal reason to sentence Jesus for anything. And he's no fool. But he also knew that the religious leaders, he then also realises that they're trying to use any legal means possible to get rid of someone who is causing them problems. So what does he do? He allows them, in order to suit himself and his political standing, he allows them a legal loophole that we'll talk about in a sec, that will then avoid public rioting. He didn't want any of that again. Give himself an easy life. This will keep him happy. But also because it's a legal loophole and it's what they're asking for, it keeps his, supposedly, keeps his hands clean. That's what he's doing. Now, if you have a look in your Bibles, depending on what version you've got, you might realise verse 17 is missing. Your, your, verse might go, your verses might go from verse 16 to verse 18. Have a look. I think it's the NIV keeps it. It's only because it's not in all the ancient manuscripts that we draw the book of Luke from. It's in some of them, but not all of them. So some Bibles, just to be cautious, they don't include it. Others do include it because it is in some of the ancient manuscripts. And it, but it, it, what, all it's doing is explaining this legal loophole. Verse 17 says, you might even have a note at the bottom of your Bible if it's, um, if it's missing. It says, now he, Pilate, was obliged to release one man to them at the festival. It was a tradition that was allowed at this time of year, every year, you're allowed to release a guilty person at this festival. And so he's aware of this. They knew about it. They know he's not going to give them what they want for any currently, normally legal reasons. But it just so happens, this time of year, there's this legal loophole they can lean on. And so he can go, well, it's what they want, not me. This will keep things quiet, and I can have a nice, quiet weekend. Well, it's even worth noting, his wife, you can read about it in Matthew chapter 27, another account of this same story, his pilot's wife sends him an urgent message to say that she'd had a dream, she'd have a nightmare, effectively, um, that, telling her that he was not to condemn this innocent man. And back then, Romans and Jews, they valued dreams as divine revelations, as they were sent to guide humans. And so Pilate would have ignored his wife's dream with great reluctance. And yet, for the easy life, and to supposedly keep his conscience clear, he does it anyway. And so here we've got this mockery of a trial and the resulting decision that is born from personal uh, preference, if you like, and not evidence, this is where we end up, in this awful moment where an innocent man is condemned and a guilty man is released. So before we look at those two men, let's just briefly look at these accusers, the, pr- the prosecution, if you like, because we can learn a lot from them. Because you've got the chief priests, we've got the religious rulers, we've got Pilate himself as well, of course. They're all acting out of fear of man than fear of God. The chief priests and the rulers, they've been worrying about their chokehold uh, on society, um, that their grip on, on the people might slip. They're losing influence. Jesus is getting more popular than them. You see it in Luke chapter 20, Luke chapter 22, it said they feared the people. It literally says it out loud. 
That's where they're operating and where they're coming from. And then Pilate himself, he's acting out of fear of more unease in his province. He wants the easy life. So he's, he's making a political choice. Not an ethical one, is he? He's okay with seeing an innocent man killed and a guilty one released, which is clearly, even to him, not right. But he goes with it so as to maintain order and an easy life. And then you've got the people in general who are present as well. A lot of the crowds, a lot of the general population now turning up. They too are now, many of these are in favour of removing Jesus from the landscape entirely. Why? Well, some of it will be living out of fear of the religious leaders. They're under their influence and they're being swayed by them. Uh, But that's no excuse. There's also a fear of accountability because of what Jesus was preaching. They didn't like what he was saying. There was an... He's talking about having an honesty before God about their desperate brokenness. Same for us. It's about accountability before God, about being honest about our desperate brokenness and our and their need to repent and to follow him. People don't like that sometimes, and I get why. And that's what they're doing here. And so we too, we can operate out of a fear of what others think, can't we? Put my hand up to it. Yeah, yeah. I'm not asking you to put your hands up. I'm not just going to make notes. Oh, Jane has trouble with such and such. No, but we can live out of that fear, can't we? We can live out the fear of not being popular, can't we? Yeah. We can live out the fear of not having power or influence sometimes, always feeling the one who's not listened to. We can have the fear of not being that person. We can have the fear of not having an easy life. Yeah, it's me again. Yep. We can also have the fear of being accountable and having to make right changes that are painful in the process before God. Sometimes we'd rather not have to, wouldn't we? I'm going to repeat these things again in a minute, but all of these things can lord over the choices that we make. All these things can become such an idol in our lives. What I mean by that is something that we feed, something that we nurture, something that we end up serving until it completely dictates our choices and our honesty and how we do or don't honour our maker as well as other people. These are the things that sway our choices and they're not right, they're not good. So let me just ask for a moment, just quietly think to yourself, which of these are you most likely to be susceptible to? Is it seeking other people's approval? Is it wanting power and influence? Maybe it's wanting an easy life. Maybe it's not wanting to have to change and be accountable and responsible for your choices and your actions. We are all prone to at least some of these, aren't we? And yet all of them, they turn us away from God, who knows best in such a loving way But these things can so easily tug at our hearts more, can't they? It's all too easy. So, Steve, thanks for all that, but where's the good news? (laughs) It's like, oh, flipping it, it's a bit heavy, isn't it? Where's the good news? Let's look at the two people who are accused and will land in a wonderful place. Let's look at the defence, if you like. Let's look at Barabbas. And then let's look at Jesus before we finish. Barabbas. Fascinating chap. Verse 19 tells us a bit about him, doesn't it? Verse 19 says, He was a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. 
Now, these insurrectionists, they're a band of people who are anti-Roman. Well, that's quite telling for starters. Barabbas is anti-Roman, so Pilate should have wanted to keep him on death row, shouldn't he? <laughs> keep him behind bars and then get rid of him completely. Would have suited him. He's anti-Roman. They are anti-Roman freedom fighters who took the notion too far and basically they became terrorists. That's, he's one of them. And he's one of the alpha guys. He started an insurrection, it says. But he's also in prison for murder. Now, that word in the original language there is singular, not plural, and it helps us understand the difference. If it's plural, it's just talking about, just talking about, slaughter, as in a moment of rage in a frenzied environment and lots of people were killed, that kind of thing, in a big brawl, in a big fight or whatever. That would be when it's in plural. This is in singular, which means it's referring to an act that is cold and calculated. The other isn't excused, of course, not at all. But it's talking about a very cold, calculated act of killing. That's who this man is. John chapter 18, another one of the biographies of Jesus, says that Barabbas was a robber. Bit of a piece of work, isn't he? Matthew 27 says they, they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. He was well known for it as well. It wasn't something that happened quietly, small, in private. He's notorious for it. He was known for his deeds. He was marked by his nature. He's a pretty dark guy, isn't he? Now, in contrast, let's look at Jesus. Here he is, proven throughout by many means, by, through his miracles, through his wonders, through the things he said, through the prophecies he's fulfilled from hundreds and hundreds of years before. We, we still have those manuscripts today that um, prophesy what will happen when the Messiah arrives, and Jesus could not have constructed what he managed to do. He, did, he fulfilled the hundreds of those prophecies. He is God himself, who is eternally pure, who is cosmically powerful. Even in this moment, he's still sustaining the universe. That's who he is. And yet he's taking every physical blow. We've read earlier that he's already been beaten. He's taken every physical blow, and he's taken every verbal blow that comes his way, and even more so of all of that in the next few hours it will be for him. And he does it pretty much in silence. Matthew chapter 27 Verse 12 says, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. We heard last week that he speaks up once. When they say, you, you, you're actually saying you're God. He'll, he'll speak up once. Other than that, he keeps his mouth shut, no matter what comes his way. Physical beatings, verbal accusations that are completely untrue. He just takes it. And he's fulfilling, I talked about those prophecies, he fulfills a prophecy from Isaiah 53 that was written 700 years before that says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter... And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is resilient beyond comprehension. He is of utter integrity. He is completely at peace with his Father in standing firm and not fighting back in order that the mission at hand gets completed. He is willing to suffer for our sakes, as we'll get to see later as well. And he takes it in astonishing stillness. Now, 
compare these two people. <laughs> these two men who are being weighed against one another on the people's scales. They're incomparable, right? Completely incomparable. One is a malicious killer, the other is the giver of life. There's no comparison, is there? There can't even be the slightest overlap between the two, right? Well, in God's grace, there is a connection, not when it comes to their character, not when it comes to their very nature, of course, as we've just seen. But there is a place where Jesus willingly affiliates with this corrupted criminal. Because in a brilliant way, the way God has written this story, this true tale, the way he's written it, He's done so in order to help us grasp the obvious good news from within this awful miscarriage of justice. And the clue is in their names. Twice over, you know, names can give a person meaning, can't they? When you hear a name about somebody, there's a, there's a meaning attached to it by the time you get to know who this person is. And um, God uses that to help us grasp the good news on display. Their names are connected. First of all, it's quite likely we're dealing with two Jesuses here. Uh, some manuscripts of Matthew tell us that um, Barabbas' full name was Jesus Barabbas. I think, so that's when I was talking about the NRV earlier. The NRV has Jesus Barabbas. We are, our uh, Matthew that we read in, we read the ESV here when we're preaching, it just says Barabbas. Because, it's not, again, it's not in all manuscripts. Um, but its indicators are, uh, his name was Jesus Barabbas. There's a clue there. There's something to compare them as they sit on these scales where they don't otherwise compare. That's probably not a coincidence, right? But when it comes to his surname, Barabbas is his surname. It's his family name, if you like. Bar, in that language, means son of. So Jesus would have been known as, because of his human father, um, Joseph, his adoptive father, he would have been known as Jesus Bar Joseph in that respect. People would have been known as, I don't know, uh, I don't know, James Bar Simeon or whatever. I would be known as Stephen Bar Peter. That would be my name, son of Peter. It becomes your family name. So this guy is Bar Abbas. Wonderfully, Abbas just means father. You see it in Romans chapter 8, when Paul talks to us about you can pray to God like your father, call him Abba, which just means Papa Daddy. That's how wonderfully our connection with the Father in heaven is. He says, Call me Papa. That's how much I love you. You're my kids. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so this guy, Bar Abbas, son of the father. It's spelled out loud when you know the language, isn't it? He's the son, son of the father, and yet in contrast we have Jesus who is the son of the father. So we find Pilate presenting these two men before the crowd who are baying for Jesus' blood. We've got two Jesuses, both of whom are called the son of the father. One is pure one is sinless, one is eternal, one is undeserving of any form of punishment or suffering, right? And the other is infamous for his evil deeds. He's fully deserving of justice falling very heavily on his head, earthly justice and a heavenly justice as well. One represents peace and wholeness and light, and the other represents violence and disorder, chaos, darkness. And which one does the crowd deem worth setting free? And which one do they deem worth sentencing to death? It's the complete opposite of how it should have gone, isn't it? It's illogical, it's nonsensical, 
It's outright wicked. Now to our eyes, just in that, it's bad enough, isn't it? But to God's eyes, it's even worse. He says in Ezekiel chapter 18, he says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. They all belong to me. But he says, The soul who sins shall die. We are responsible for our own sins, the consequences of them, aren't we? No one else is going to take the punishment for that. God's going to look at you and go, why did you do that? We are all liable for the consequences of our sins. Earthly consequences like relational brokenness can be because of something we've chosen or done or failed to do, can't it? Circumstantial stress sometimes, maybe legal punishment or whatever. We can't always say that life hasn't gone our way and it's not our fault. <laughs> can't always say that. Can't, it's not, we can't always say it's not our fault, things are stressful or painful. Sometimes that's true. Don't mishear me. Life does happen. Of course it does. But we also need to accept sometimes that our deliberate, our willful, our sinful choices, they do bear consequences. And in those occasions, the finger can only point in one direction, right? And when those moments happen, there are eternal consequences too. Our sin, it's a brokenness in us. When we still use the word sin, we're not just talking about the naughty things we do. They are just the outcome of what's going on in our hearts. Sin is a sickness, it's a brokenness that we give into and we feed and we love. If we didn't enjoy the things we do, we wouldn't do them, right? Our sin is a brokenness. It's by its nature, it persists in choosing something other than God as a preference. That's what it is. Preferring to live in each of those moments according to our design for life and not for his. That's what it means to sin. That's what it means. And the consequence of that, ultimately, can be him giving us what we ultimately choose, not him. He keeps saying, you, you keep not wanting me? There'll come a point, I'm going to give you, not me. That means an existence separated from the source of all that is good. That's not what you want, is it? And making these choices in each of these moments in our everyday weeks, whether they're large choices or small choices, they're all effectively, they're a microcosm of humanity's overall turning from God. It's the same thing. In those moments, we are reenacting every time that we are deciding we want something other than him. That's what sin is. That's what happened right at the beginning, and that's what we still do today. And so here, out of these two men, who should die for their sin? <laughs> Between Jesus, the son of the heavenly father, or Barabbas, the murderer? Who should be dying for their sin? And yet, this happens. So why would God allow it? Why did it happen? Why did Jesus simply accept this in silence? Someone once said, setting Barabbas free makes no sense until you realise Barabbas is me. Setting Barabbas free makes no sense until you realise Barabbas is me. See, in the same way that Jesus takes Barabbas' place here, giving him back his earthly life, Jesus has taken our place that we might receive eternal life. In Jesus, we get to become Barabbas, children of the Father. Isn't that wonderful news? Now, I don't know, as I come to a close, I don't know what Barabbas' reaction 
actually was as he sat on death row knowing it was a literal dead end. That's what was going through his mind at that time behind those bars, wasn't it? He knew that morning that within hours he would be in excruciating agony hanging from a cross as his life drains from his body. And then he hears those footsteps coming down the corridor, those keys jangling and thinking, it's happening sooner than I thought, they're coming for me. Didn't think it was going to happen yet. They're coming to get me. And then the door's unlocked, his chains are removed, they're dropped to the floor and he's told he's free instead. Someone else was going to die in his place. Now, whatever went through his heart and his mind at the time, it's never recorded. Tradition actually tells us, history recordings tell us that he actually um, he was killed later on during another rebellion attempt. He went back to his old ways. But even in that moment, I don't know what he thought, but I'm pretty sure I know what my response would have been. <laughs> Utter elation. There'll be surprise, there'll be confusion, there'll be bewilderment, shock. For a moment, it's like, what do you mean? Is this a prank? But then this rising, bubbling up of joy, as it dawns on me, I'm free. I'm free, I'm forgiven. I'm released into undeserved new life. What is this? I was once a walking dead man, and now I get to live. Imagine that joy when it dawns on him what's just happened. For all of us who know Christ as our saviour, that is our story. Amen? That is who we are. And I've just got to ask, do do you know the joy of Jesus Christ having died in your place? Do you know that? Because you can. If that's the life you've stepped into, then joy should be a natural fruit of it. Sometimes we don't always feel it. Sometimes, sometimes that joy gets quenched as we step back into sin, doesn't it? I'm sure we can all relate to that. We've all experienced that. Sometimes that joy is quenched as we allow circumstances around us to dictate our feelings, right? We wake up in the morning feeling low because of our circumstances rather than looking at God and realising his love over us. We do that, don't we? And last week, Rachel, she reminded us that true Deep down, unwavering joy comes from dwelling in and with Christ. And realising today's truth that we just learned, that's where we rediscover it. Because of Christ, I am free. Forever. I once was dead, but now I live. This is why um, David writes in Psalm 51, when he's caught in sin, and he turns back in repentance to God and worships him and cries out to him, and he says, "'Restore to me the joy of my salvation.'" Realise what Christ has done for you. If you don't have that joy now, realise what Christ has done for you and you sense that joy. You'll know it because I was dead for eternity, now I live for eternity because of his grace that he didn't need to do. He took on what he never deserved, what I did deserve, and he now gives me what I don't deserve, eternal loving relationship with the Father, with Christ in heaven. And So if this is all new to you, Knowing Jesus, the Son of God, as your Saviour who died in your place, you can today. Come and talk to us. Come, come have a chat with us afterwards. We'd love to. You can know a joy that is rooted in, no longer found in pursuing your favourite things, but in knowing that he has set you free. That can be yours. You can know a peace that transcends whatever your circumstances are, 
You can know a peace that eclipses whatever guilt or shame your heart keeps trying to accuse you of, whether rightly, sometimes or wrongly. You can know a peace that eclipses all of that. That can be yours today. It's all available in Jesus, who is the only one who can cleanse you from all that is wrong, the one who stood in your place, the one who died and rose again that you might live new life forever free in him. The invitation is available for you right here, right now. Let's all turn to him. Let me pray for us.